Indicator lights. Whether you know it or not, every modern car has indicator lights on the dashboard. And these indicator lights are designed to provide us with a preemptive warning about potential vehicular problems. For example, if you see a dashboard light that looks like a thermostat, then the chances are your car is about to overheat. If you see a dashboard light that looks like a battery, well, then it's time to buy a new battery before your car is dead. If you see a dashboard light that looks like an oil can, then you might have an oil leak. And if you see a dashboard light that looks like a trash can, then you're driving a Chevy. Seriously, though, you know, dashboard indicator lights are important because they help us to identify potential vehicular issues that are uh, about to occur. And it's in a similar yet spiritual way that the nation of Israel can also serve as an indicator light. The nation of Israel can serve as an indicator light for those who want to know where we are on God's prophetic calendar as we consider the multi-front war that's currently taking place there in the land of promise, well, I decided that this might be a good time to present you with a biblical perspective about the controversial conflict that's quickly dividing people in every country. And not only that, but this controversial conflict is also dividing churches as sincere Christians begin to take sides for many different reasons. You know, for example, some Christians believe that Israel ought to de-escalate this situation by demonstrating gracious restraint. At the same time, others are hoping for the complete destruction of Hamas. Some Christians have bought into the belief that Israel is somehow engaging in ethnic cleansing, while others are quick to insist that it's the Palestinians who are the problem. Some Christians are less than concerned about this ongoing conflict because, well, it's just taking place so far away from us, while others are right now filled with fear as they wonder, is this the beginning of Armageddon? In light of these many different opinions, it's no wonder that this controversy is now dividing Christians as we begin to engage in conversations regarding the conflict happening there in the Middle East. And so regardless of the position that you've personally embraced, it's my desire that every Christian uh, ought to pray for the people on both sides of this border. That's my first encouragement to you is just let's pray. Let's, let's pray for the people on both sides of the border. There are many innocent civilians on both sides of the border that are in the middle of this conflict. And we ought to be praying for them that they might see this as a wake-up call to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And let's pray that the Lord would use the trials and the troubles and the tribulations of this war to open the eyes of both Jew and Muslim, that they might both see their need for Jesus Christ. And while we should certainly be praying for the people on both sides of this border, I also think that every believer ought to make sure that our perspective is biblical. There's a lot of opinions out there. There's a lot of people on both sides of the political aisle, both on the left and on the right, that are saying a whole lot of things, many uh, things which aren't true. And so we need to make sure that our perspective is first and foremost a biblical perspective. And so we ought to be looking to the word of God first rather than to the opinions of our favorite political pundits, or secular news sources. And with this as the goal, I want to spend our time today considering the way in which the nation of Israel is actually something that uh, can become an indicator light for those who want to know what time it is on God's prophetic calendar. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we're going to consider, first of all, how how Israel becomes an indicator based on the promise that God made to Abraham. We'll also see how Israel becomes an indicator according to the prophecies that the Lord has presented. And finally, Israel becomes an indicator uh, as we consider uh, the peace plan that's offered by people on both sides of the border. And so with all of this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 12 because it's here in Genesis 12 where we find the Lord. He's presenting a promise to Abraham, who at that point in time was known as Abram, And God presents this promise regarding the land of promise. 
Now, as we make our way to the 12th chapter of Genesis, I just want to take a moment to point out that the conflict that's currently occurring between the state of Israel and the Palestinians, it's actually, and hear me on this, this is actually a struggle between the Arabs who are occupying land that does not belong to them and the Israelites who are dwelling in the land that was promised to them by the Lord. Now, listen, I I get it. I just said something highly controversial. And I realize that this is a highly controversial statement and and, and a highly controversial position. And yet the proof of my point can be found in the fact that this area of the Middle East was known as Israel up until 135 AD. It was called Israel. And in 135 AD, that's when a Roman emperor came along. His name was Hadrian. He expelled the Jews from Jerusalem And it was at that point in time when he named the region Palestina, which some believe to be a word derived from the ancient name Philistia, and and specifically in regards to the Philistines, who were the enemies of Israel. From that point in time in 135 AD, up until the end of the Ottoman Empire, the land of promise became the target of those who wanted to claim the land for their own. It was after the rise of Muhammad when the land was conquered and controlled by the Muslims. Then the Catholic Crusaders came in, and they tried to establish the Catholic kingdom uh, there in Jerusalem. And so the Crusades actually turned into nearly 200 years of conflict, uh, resulting in, in battles between the Catholic Crusaders and the Sunni Muslim dynasty, better known as the Ayyubids. That gave way to the Mamluk period, which then gave way to the Turkish Ottoman Empire. And the Ottoman Turks then maintained control over the land until the great Arab revolt of the early 20th century. And it was about that point in time when the term Palestine became the popular name for the territory that we see between Egypt and Mesopotamia. During that period of time, travel guides for this region, they began using Palestine as a geographical term. It wasn't a term that they were using of people, but rather a territory. Not only that, but the maps that uh, that were found in Lutheran Bibles at that period of time, those maps began to uh, contain the the, uh, reference to the land of Israel as Palestine. And these biblical maps would include titles like Palestine in the Old Testament times and Palestine in the New Testament times. And then in 1913, a German publishing company also created a picture Bible, which was called a Palestine Picture Bible. And so we're, we watched at this period of time how the land of Israel was then becoming named Palestine. And from this, uh, we can see that the land of promise wasn't really popularly known as Palestine until the early 20th century. And at the same point in time, the people who were living in Palestine, well, they didn't consider themselves to be Palestinians. And the reason why is because they were people from uh, all different countries. As a matter of fact, the land which has come to be known as Palestine, it was actually uh, inhabited uh, during the uh, early 20th century by Syrians, Turks, Kurds, Berbers, Moroccans, Algerians, Tunisians, and Nubians. There were Persians, Armenians, Egyptians, Greeks, Italians, Brits, Germans, and even Americans. And while it's true that there was a small number, a remnant of the Jews who were living in the land of promise there prior to World War II, well, it's also true that it was at that same period of time when 75% of the population of the people living in this geographical region known as Palestine, 75% of that population was made up of Arabs. So the majority of the people living in the land at that point in time were mainly Arabs. And those people came to be known as Palestinian Arabs during the 1930s. Now from there, if we fast forward to the 21st century, Arabs still make up the majority of those who call themselves Palestinians. And while they call themselves Palestinians, well, there is no ancient Palestinian language. There are no ancient Palestinian archaeological sites. There's no, there's no, you know, digs where they're finding pottery and 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 books with, you know, Palestinian origins. None, none of that. No, Palestinians are Arabs. 
In order to prove my point, I want to consider the statement made by Yasser Arafat when he was asked, what is Palestine and to whom does it belong? Just to be clear, you might not know, Yasser Arafat was the chairman of the Palestine uh, Liberation Organization from uh, 1969 until 2004. So he was the head of the PLO at that point in time. And he was also the president of the Palestinian National Authority from 1994 until 2004. And after being asked, what is Palestine and to whom does it belong? Yasser Arafat declares this, and I quote him, we are not interested in borders. Palestine is just a tiny drop in the huge Arab ocean. Our nation is the Arab nation that expands from the Atlantic to the Red Sea and beyond. From the Atlantic to the Red Sea and beyond. According to the president of the PLO, the Palestinians are Arabs. I didn't make that up. That's what Yasser Arafat said. That the Palestinians are Arabs. And the Arab nation has exclusive claim to all of the land from Morocco to Oman and beyond. What's smack dab in the the middle of all that area? Israel. So what is he saying? The land of Israel belongs to the Arabs. In light of these facts, there should be no doubt that the conflict currently occurring between the state of Israel and the so-called Palestinians, this is actually just the same struggle that started back, you know, even before World War II, when when the God of Abraham started bringing his people back into the land of promise, and by the end of World War II, the children of Israel were brought back into the land of their inheritance and were enabled by God to reestablish the state of Israel. And what this means then is that the Arabs who currently call themselves Palestinians are actually choosing to fight against the Almighty One who brought his people back into their land. In their attempt to stop Israel from existing as a nation, because that's what they, they, they've publicly called for, the extermination and annihilation of the Jews. But their fight's with God. Because God is the one who gave them this land. Now, before I get too far ahead of myself, let's consider the promise that the Lord made to Abram. It's here in Genesis chapter 12. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1, here we learn that the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now here in these verses, we find the details of the covenant that the Lord made with Father Abraham. And according to this covenant, the Lord was promising to bless Abraham's faith. It was the faith that led him to leave the land of his own family and head off to this place that he didn't know where he was going, and his wife's like, where are we going? And Abram's like, I don't know, God's going to show us. And by faith he went. And he obtained the land of promise. And this land was promised to be given to his descendants, who would then go on to create a new nation, which would come to be known as Israel. Not only that, but the nation of Israel would also receive an inheritance of land that the Lord Abraham would discover you know, once he arrived there. And that's what we find in Genesis chapter 13. If you would, let's flip forward one chapter. It's here in Genesis chapter 13 where we find the Lord presenting Abraham with this land. Look with me there at Genesis 13, beginning at verse 14. Here we learn that the Lord said to Abram, after Lot has separated from him, lift your eyes now. And look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, where all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth and your descendants also could be numbered, arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron. 
and built an altar there to the Lord. Here in these verses, we find the Lord presenting Abraham with the land that he had promised to give him when he was back in Ur. And here he's saying, hey, look in every direction. Look to the four corners of the compass. All of this land is yours as an inheritance forever. You know, in the Hebrew, that word forever, the Hebrew word actually means forever. Yeah. And we shouldn't be surprised to learn here that this place, Hebron, where Abram planted his tent, well, it's you know, located smack dab in the middle of Israel. So from Hebron, as he looked north, south, east, west, in all directions, yeah, he was standing in the center of Israel. Not only that, but you might also like to know that the Lord presented definitive boundaries to Moses. So Abraham, he just says, hey, look in all the directions, all this land is yours. But to Moses, he says, here are the definitive boundaries. It's in Numbers 34, if you want to read it for homework. But here's where the Lord says to Moses, command the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, the land of Canaan to its boundaries. Your southern border shall be from the wilderness of Zin along the border of Edom. Then your southern border shall extend eastward to the end of the Salt Sea. Your border shall turn from the southern side of the ascent of Akrabim, continue to Zin, and be on the south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it shall go on to Hazer Adar and continue to Asmon. The border shall turn from Asmon to the brook, uh, brook of Egypt, and it shall end at the sea. As for the western border, you shall have the great sea for a border. This shall be your western border, and this shall be your northern border. From the great sea, you shall mark out your borderline to Mount Hor. From Mount Hor, you shall mark out your border to the entrance of Hamath, and then the direction of the border shall be towards Zedad. The border shall proceed to Ziphron, and it shall end at Hazar Enan. This shall be your northern border. You shall mark out your eastern border from Hazar Enan to Shephem. The border shall go down from Shephem to Riblah on the east side of Ayan. The border shall go down and reach to the eastern side of the Sea of Chinnereth. The border shall go down along the Jordan, and it shall end at the Salt Sea. This shall be your land with its surrounding borders." Sounds fairly definitive. The Lord presented Moses with definitive boundaries of the promised land. And listen, these boundaries encompass every disputed territory that the Arabs currently claim belongs to them. Whether we're talking about the West Bank or whether we're talking about the Gaza Strip, every bit of disputed territory falls within these borders. And while the Arabs truly believe that the land belongs to them, their disagreement is really with the Lord. Moses didn't create these boundaries. The Lord did. Moses didn't make this up. The Lord created these boundaries. And the Lord is the one who promised to give this land to the children of Israel for how long? Forever. Forever. With that, it's interesting to note that the Muslims' Quran, which they believe to be the word of Allah, well, it effectively claims the same promise that was made to Moses. As a matter of fact, it's the Quran, Surah 5, verses 20 and 21. There we read this. When Moses said to his people, O my people, remember God's blessings upon you when he placed prophets among you and made you kings and gave you what he never gave any other people. O my people, enter the holy land which God has assigned for you and do not turn back lest you return as losers. So in the Quran, you know, the, the author of this verse is say, saying that God said to Moses... Get your people back into your land lest you lose it. And, you know, this is being written at a time when Israel had been 
sent out and exiled from their land. And, and so, you know, basically in the 7th century there, the Quran is telling the people of Israel who had been scattered abroad to go back to the Holy Land. What Holy Land? The land that God gave to Moses. That's what the Quran says. And so in the Quran, we find a command for the Israelites who were scattered abroad to return to the Holy Land, which God had, and I quote, assigned for you. The boundaries that he gave to Moses. That being the case, listen, the Quran, which has been embraced by Hamas as the word of God, I don't believe it's the word of God, but Hamas thinks this is the word of God. And it's here in the Quran where Allah establishes the promise that the Lord made to Abraham and then confirmed to Moses. So why won't Hamas abide by what the Quran says and identify the land of promise as the land that belongs to the people of Moses? Well, they don't obviously believe the Quran because they want the land for themselves. And yet, as we consider this verse out of the Quran, what this means then is that according to the Quran, Yasser Arafat was wrong when he claimed Arab ownership of Israel. Yasser Arafat was wrong when he referred to the land of Israel as Palestine. Uh, According to the Quran and the Bible, Yasser Arafat was wrong. Uh, The former leader of the PLO was so wrong that we should go ahead and start naming him No Sir Arafat. When it comes to the promise that the Lord made to Abram and then further uh, uh, you know, made definitive claims uh, through the, the, the boundaries that he gave to Moses, we would do well to realize that the land belongs to the children of Israel. According to the Lord, the land belongs to the children of Israel. And this is according to an unbreakable promise that he made to Abraham. Now this brings us to our second point, because listen, the Israel indicator begins with this promise of of a promised land which has definitive borders. And so the minute somebody says, well, this strip or this area or this region belongs to the Arabs, indicator light goes off in my mind, and I go, wait, no, no, no. This land belongs to Israel. Well, the second indicator of Israel then it, it, it includes the prophecies regarding the way that all of this is going to play out in the last days. And to explain my point, let's consider the prophetic promises that the Lord presented when he promised to bring his people back into their land after exile. And with this as the focus, if you will, let's turn in our Bibles now to the Gospel of Luke. I'd like you to turn specifically to Luke chapter 19. As you make your way to the 19th chapter of Luke's Gospel account, just want to take a moment to point out that the Lord not only promised to provide the children of Israel with the land of their inheritance as an everlasting inheritance, but he also promised to punish them if they failed to follow his commandments. And so the Lord didn't give Israel a blank check. He didn't say, live any old way and you can stay in the land. No, no, the Lord said, here's my commandments, here's our covenant, and if you walk according to the commandments and the covenant, then you can remain in your land. At the same time, the Lord also warned them that they would become captives of their enemies if they failed to keep their covenant with the Lord. And that's exactly what happened when the Lord allowed the Assyrians to conquer uh, the land of northern Israel in 722 B.C. And while Judah kind of straightened up at that point in time for a little while, well, they eventually fell away as well. And that's when the Lord allowed the Babylonian captivity to take place beginning in 586 B.C. Well, then came the day when the Lord brought his people back from their Babylonian captivity. It was 537 BC. That's when the exiles were able to return to the land of promise according to the prophetic promise of the Lord. And at that point in time, the Israelites rebuilt the temple there in Jerusalem and they reinstated the sacrificial system. And after living in the land for uh, almost 500 years, the day finally came when the majority of them missed the arrival of their Messiah because they were more interested in their religion than they were in a relationship with their Savior. 
Not only that, but the religious leaders of Israel, they called for the crucifixion of Christ Jesus after falsely accusing him of blasphemy. And it's for this reason that the Lord then promised a second dispersion. With all this in mind, let's consider the warning that Jesus presents here in Luke chapter 19. If you would, look with me there beginning at verse 42. Here the Lord Jesus declares, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's prophetically pointing to the day when the Romans would come in and conquer the city of Jerusalem and raise everything to the ground, including the temple. That's exactly what happened back in 70 AD under the direction of a Roman general named Titus. And then by the early second century, the Jews were expelled from the land just as Jesus had promised. And yes, there was a remnant that was still there, uh, but, but for the most part, they were expelled there in the early second century. And the majority of them, well, they were scattered to the four corners of the earth. That is all the way until the 19th century when they, we started seeing Jews coming back to the land. Now, with all this in mind, we should take a moment to consider the prophetic promise that the Lord made regarding the return, regarding the regathering of Israel. And with this as the focus, let's turn in our Bibles to to the book of Isaiah. I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 11. And as you make your way to the 11th chapter of Isaiah, I just want to take a moment to point out that the Bible contains many, many prophecies about the return and the restoration of Israel as the Lord then gathers them back together in their land in the last days. For example, you know, the Lord presented an end times prophecy to Ezekiel with a prophetic parable that compares Israel to dead bones that are brought back together and then, you know, you know fleshed out and, and given breath of life. And it's a very interesting prophecy there. And then also the prophet Micah described this as a time when God will serve as a shepherd and bring his sheep back into their fold and guide them into the midst of their pastures. We also find here in Isaiah chapter 11, the prophet Isaiah describing this regathering of Israel, which will take place in the last days. And if you would look with me there, beginning at verse 11, here the prophet Isaiah declares, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. From Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea, he will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Here in these verses, we find the prophet Isaiah, he's prophetically pointing to this day when the Lord will begin to recover the remnant of his people who had been scattered in every direction of the world. And seeing how this was the second time, notice again in verse 11, the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. This isn't the first time. This isn't a prophecy about the Babylonian captivity. This is the second time. He's referring to the days there in the middle of the 20th century when the Lord reestablished the nation of Israel like dead bones being brought back to life, like sheep that had been scattered being brought back into the fold. Think about that for a moment. The children of Israel had been a people without a land and without a government for nearly 2,000 years. How incredible is that? From the end of the Roman Empire until the end of the Ottoman Empire, the land of promise was trampled underfoot by the Gentile nations just as Jesus had promised. The land of promise was trampled underfoot by the Gentiles who sought to occupy and control the inheritance that belongs to the people of Israel. Then came the day when the Lord used the events of World War II to orchestrate the rebirth of Israel. It's amazing. And by 1948, the people of Israel declared their national 
independence. Sadly, there are many who have opposed this miraculous regathering of God's chosen people. For example, it was in 1948. That's when five Arab nations opposed Israel's declaration of independence. Five Arab nations rose up against the state of Israel. This included Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Egypt, and Jordan. Even Saudi Arabia got in on the battle. It was at that point in time when a prophecy that we find in the 83rd Psalm was partially fulfilled. Just to be clear, the prophecy that I'm referring to is presented by a seer named Asaph. It's in the 83rd Psalm where Asaph talks about you know, the, the surrounding nations coming against Israel. We don't have time to read the entire prophecy, and yet I'd like to consider the nations that Asaph mentioned. It's in the 83rd Psalm where Asaph prophetically points to this day when the nations surrounding Israel will declare, and I quote him here, come and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. In other words, the Arab nations surrounding Israel would call for ethnic cleansing. They would call for the annihilation and the extermination of Israel. And that's exactly what they've been saying ever since. The leftists like to accuse Israel of being the one trying to engage in ethnic cleansing. But I would ask, what ethnicity are they trying to cleanse? There actually is no people group known as Palestinians. So is Israel trying to cleanse the ethnicity of who, the Arabs? They accuse Israel of engaging in ethnic cleansing when in reality, it's the Arabs who call themselves Palestinians who are trying to cleanse the land of Israel from the Jews. And that's what Asaph said in, in Psalm 83 verse 4. Come let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're, they're calling for the annihilation and extermination, the final solution that Hitler introduced. Well, as we consider the people that Asaph was talking about, this includes the tents of Edom, which is probably a reference to southern Jordanians or uh, possibly even uh, Arabs who were uh, initially... Uh, you know, living in tents in this area. But Asaph also mentions the Ishmaelites, which are the Saudi Arabians and the Moabites and the central Jordanians. The, he also referred to the Hagrites, better known as the Egyptians, and Gebal, which is there in northern Lebanon. He spoke of the Ammonites, which is northern Jordan, and Amalek, which is located in the south, uh, just south of Israel. He spoke of Philistia, uh, which is the area that's now uh, called the Gaza Strip, and this area is now inhabited you know, by uh, the Arabs that uh, uh, are living in the Gaza Strip. He also referred to Tyre, which now includes Hezbollah. And then he mentioned the Syrians and, and the children of Lot. And, and according to Asaph, there was coming a day when these groups would all work together in a military confederacy to invade the nation of Israel and to exterminate the Jews. As we consider all of the, these groups uh, that belong to this confederacy, you know, some Bible teachers insist that this prophecy was fulfilled back in 1948 at the time of the first Arab-Israeli war. I believe it was partially fulfilled because some of these nations were part of that invasion, just not all of them. And so there are many reasons to reject the idea that Psalm 83 has been completely fulfilled. For example, we know that the specific confederation of nations has yet to form the complete alliance against Israel. And not only that, but Asaph also informs us that this military confederacy would be turned into whirling dust and driven out like chaff by the wind. That hasn't happened yet because they're still there. And they're still trying to invade Israel and they're still attacking Israel. But Asaph assures us at the end of the Psalm 83 war that the Lord will confound them and dismay them forever. In other words, they're not going to recover from this Psalm 83 war. They're going to be completely destroyed, put to shame, and they're going to perish at the hands of the Lord. 
And as we consider the current conflict and how this Arab-Israeli conflict continues on, we can be certain that Psalm 83 has yet to be fulfilled. And every time I see these nations starting to work together to invade Israel, the indicator light comes on. And I start thinking, is this it? Is this the Psalm 83 war? Is this that time? While it's true that the Psalm 83 prophecy has yet to be fully fulfilled, the same is true for a few more end-time prophecies, like the one in Isaiah chapter 17, where the prophet Isaiah declares, the burden against Damascus, behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. We know that this prophecy hasn't come to pass. This prophecy about the destruction of Damascus has yet to be fulfilled. And so whenever I start to hear about the Israeli airstrikes on Damascus, like the one that just happened this past week, well, I I see the indicator light coming on. It gets my attention. You know, are we about to see this go down? And listen, we're watching these prophecies beginning to come to pass, and and at the same time, we're also seeing the stage being set for the Ezekiel 38 and 39 prophecy uh, to be fulfilled. And just to be clear, you know, it's in Ezekiel 38 where the Lord revealed another military confederacy. And remember, Ezekiel 37, that's where the dead bones come back to life. And then Ezekiel 38, Ezekiel reveals another military confederacy which is going to rise up against Israel. And as we consider the major players who will eventually lead that invasion of Israel, we find Ezekiel referring to many different groups, including Gog in the land of Magog, which was inhabited, uh, which, uh, which is currently inhabited by Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, all the other stands. You know, the, that, that's Gog of Magog. Ezekiel also refers to the prince of Rosh, which appears to be a reference to the leader of Russia. Ezekiel mentions Persia, which we now know to be Iran. Ezekiel also mentions uh, Meshach, Tubal, and Gomer, which uh, refer to Turkey and Turkey's weird cousin, Gomer. Listen, as we consider this prophecy, which reveals the way that these nations will create this anti-Israeli confederacy, There should be no doubt that this prophecy about the invasion of Israel is beginning to be put in place. And so this should also serve as an end times indicator light. You might not know this, but over the past year or two, we've been watching as Russia, Iran, and Turkey, three of the major players in Ezekiel 38, they've been working together with the Syria issue. And they're forming this political alliance, which could potentially become the beginning of Ezekiel 38's anti-Israeli confederation. And, and while it's true that there's coming a day when this confederacy is going to invade Israel, well, it's also true that the Lord has promised to punish them for attacking the apple of his eye. And I like the way that Ezekiel explains it in Ezekiel chapter 38. There he declares, I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. From this, we can see that the Lord most certainly has an opinion about the people who keep invading Israel. The Lord has an opinion about it. And oftentimes, the opinion of the Lord does not line up with the opinions of people who are sitting on legacy television and and, secular news sources and these sorts of things. They all have their opinions too. And rarely do I hear them having an opinion that lines up with the Bible. And while it's true that the Lord allowed the Gentiles to trample the land of promise underfoot from the late first century all the way up until 1948, it's also true that we've clearly entered into a period of time when the Lord is preparing to punish those who keep attempting to divide the land that the Lord promised to give to the descendants of Israel. And I want to prove my point by appealing to Joel chapter 3. It's here where the Lord declares this, Behold, In those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat 
and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. Does God sound happy about a two-state solution? Does God seem like he's on board with dividing up the land of Israel? He's mad at the nations for dividing up his land. And so the Lord describes the days when the battle of Armageddon will eventually break out as the nations of the world are brought to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And it's at this time when the Lord will enter into judgment with the enemies of Israel and there they will be destroyed because they determined to divide up the land of God. Listen, if you're standing on the side of those who are ready to to divide up the land of Israel, then you are standing against God. It's that simple. We can be certain from this prophecy that God is opposed to those who are trying to divide his land. And in this way, I'm here to tell you that this division of land is not a peace plan. And it never can be. This brings us to our third and final point because, listen, the Israel indicator not only begins with God's promise to Abraham, and the Israel indicator not only involves these prophecies that help us to understand how the end times will play out there in the land of promise, but the Israel indicator also includes the concept of a peace plan and how that's all going to play out. And in order to explain what I mean, I want to consider the pseudo-peace which will occur with the rise of the Antichrist, and, and I want to consider the way that pseudo-peace is going to happen here and there uh, and, and so with this as the focus, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Daniel. I'd like you to turn to Daniel chapter 9. As you make your way to the ninth chapter of Daniel, I just want to take a moment to consider the, the goal of peace. Because listen, I, I, I'm guessing that we're all for peace. If I were to take an informal survey this morning and say, hands up, who wants peace on earth and goodwill towards men? I, I think that we would all agree. Yes, we want peace. And when it comes to the goal of peace in the Middle East, it's important to understand that there are many who believe that peace could possibly be achieved through some sort of two-state solution. And and I'm sorry if, if this hurts to hear it, but listen, the Arabs who are referring to themselves as Palestinians have rejected this peace plan on five different occasions. You might not know this, but back in 1937... The Arabs there in the land of promise were offered 80% of the disputed territory. 80%. Israel was ready, the Israelites who were there, they were ready to take 20% of their land and allow the Arabs to have 80% of it. You know what the Arabs said? Nope. We want it all. Because in their mind, you know, from, from the river to the sea, It's all their land. And if, if, you know, you don't give them the entire land, what do they say? Gas the Jews? When's the last time you heard people talking about gassing the Jews? Who who was that group? And yet now you have pro-Palestinians jumping up in, in live in a public format on live television talking about gassing the Jews? Talking about Palestinians should be free from the river to the sea? Well, free in what way? Well, free through the extermination of the Jews. They rejected the the, the territorial breakup of 80% for the Arabs and 20% for the Jews back in 1937. Again, 1947, 1967, 2000, and 2008, the Arabs were offered a two-state solution in order to create peace, and each time they refused. They even refused to negotiate. They're not interested in achieving peace through a two-state solution. And and these leaders of Israel keep giving land away, thinking it's going to work. Here, take all of the Gaza Strip. What happened right after that? Hamas came in, established the Gaza Strip as a military base. 
and started attacking Israel. Rather than working towards peace in the Middle East, Hamas has been attacking Israel from the Gaza Strip for the past 15 years. And if you think, well, the people there don't really want Hamas there, 75% of the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip elected Hamas and want them there. 75% of them. Hamas keeps terrorizing Israel, keeps launching attacks into Israel. And then when Israel retaliates, the global leaders are quick to insist that Israel must de-escalate. That they're engaging in war crimes, that they're trying to engage in ethnic cleansing. What they fail to understand is that the Lord has already revealed the way that all of this is going to end for the Arab nations surrounding Israel. Remember, Psalm 83, there we learn about the day when the IDF will be forced, because of an invasion of Israel, they're going to be forced to defend the land of promise, and the Lord is going to enable them to defeat the invading forces of the Arab nations, and they're going to be blown away like dust, like chaff. And listen, this is going to provide the people of Israel with a time of peace. Because the military surrounding them will be destroyed. And during this time of peace, I believe that this is the point in time when Israel will probably rebuild their third temple. Once the Psalm 83 war ends, I believe that Israel will rebuild their temple because there's no pressure for them not to anymore. The surrounding Arab nations are no longer attacking them. I believe that this will set the condition for Israel to become a nation without security walls and without locks and these sorts of things. That's the condition that Ezekiel describes at the beginning of the Ezekiel 38 invasion, that they're a nation of unwalled villages and and no need of border control and that sort of thing. The people of Israel are going to enjoy this time of peace after Psalm 83 war and before the Ezekiel 38 invasion, and and it's there in that short-lived time of peace when they, I believe, will begin to build the third temple. Not only that, but after the temple is built, that's when the Antichrist will also establish a time of pseudo-peace through the enforcement of a seven-year covenant. And I want to consider how the angel Gabriel puts it here in Daniel chapter 9. So look with me there at verse 27. Here he declares, He, speaking of the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. And, and really the, the concept of one week there is like a seven-year period of time. So it's a, it's a week of you know, years, so seven years. And in the middle of this seven-year period of time, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, where do the Jews offer sacrifices? Because they have not offered sacrifices since they've been back in their land. Why? Because there's no temple. So the sacrifices will be reinstituted once a temple is built. But the Antichrist, after confirming a covenant for seven years, he's going to bring an end to the sacrificial system. And then uh, verse 27 in the middle, on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. In other words, Gabriel here is describing this seven-year peace treaty which will be confirmed and enforced by the Antichrist. And while it's true that many people of Israel are going to embrace this leader because this is the one who comes in his own name, as Jesus warned, and they receive him. They're going to think this is the Christ and they're going to embrace him because he brings in a promise of seven years of peace And yet in the middle of that seven-year period, they're going to quickly discover that this is not their Christ. This is not the Prince of Peace. This is an Antichrist. And they're going to realize this once he brings an end to sacrifice and offering there at the third temple in Jerusalem. And it's at that point in time when the Antichrist will cause the abomination of desolation as he enters into the temple of God and claims to be God. This is what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He declares, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, speaking of the day of the Lord, that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. There's coming a day 
when the temple will, will be rebuilt. And there's coming a day when the Antichrist will break the peace treaty that he promised. And he does this on the day when he enters the third temple and sits in the temple of God, enters the most holy place, claiming to be God. That being the case, it's important for us to realize that there won't be real peace in the Middle East until the day when the Prince of Peace finally returns. Do I want peace in the Middle East? Yeah, of course. Do you want peace in the Middle East? I'm sure of it. But all of the peace plans that people keep proposing and just divide up the land and give this land to these people and that land to those people and, and then we'll have peace. And Nope. Every time Israel gives up more of their land, they get attacked even more. There will be no peace on earth until the Prince of Peace returns and establishes his millennial kingdom from the throne of David. And it's at that point in time when Jesus Christ will rule and reign over the earth with a rod of iron. I want to consider how the Lord explained it in Isaiah chapter 9. There he presents us with this messianic prophecy, and both the first and the second coming here are found in this prophecy. It's in Isaiah 9 verse 6. That's where the prophet declares unto us, a child is born, unto us a son is given. That's a reference to the first coming, the first advent of Jesus. And then he quickly moves on to the second advent by saying the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Creator, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Here in these verses, we find the prophet Isaiah presenting us with several messianic titles, which are used of Jesus now, and this includes the Prince of Peace. And he assures us here that the Prince of Peace is the one who will usher in everlasting peace as he returns to establish his kingdom with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, he will bring peace, which will have no end. Now, there are some in the church who think that Jesus has already established his millennial kingdom here. But as we consider the Israel indicator light, I can assure you that is not the case. Some think that Jesus has already established his kingdom, but Do we see peace without end? Nope. And so we call those Christians silly. Because it doesn't line up with the scriptures. There is still war happening in the Middle East. So Jesus has not yet established his everlasting peace. But there is coming a day when he will. But until that day, well, according to the angel Gabriel... We've already you know, been informed that war and desolations will continue to be poured out until the return of Christ. And so I, while I would love to establish peace in the Middle East, the scriptures have already told us that the wars and desolations will only continue to get worse and worse until the end of Armageddon. With that, we ought to be praying for peace in the Middle East. And just to be clear, we have to be praying for the return of Jesus Christ. Because he alone will bring peace to the Middle East and beyond. You know, it was back in 2004, I was returning from Israel. And I found myself on a flight in the middle seat. Always the middle seat for me. And I found myself sitting between an Israeli on my right and an Arab identifying as a Palestinian on the left. And it was over the course of that flight that I realized I got a lot of time with these guys. And so I'm just going to start engaging them, conversations about their positions on these things. And how do you, what do you think about the borders? And what do you think about this? And it was 2004, and so there was already talks about the Gaza Strip being handed over, which then it was in 2005. And you know, so we had a lot of conversation about what was happening. 
And I was hearing the Palestinian perspective, and I was hearing the Israeli perspective, and all of that was a wonderful conversation. And as was my goal, I eventually got to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with both of them, because both of them need Jesus. I'll remind you what Paul said, that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Gentile, including the Arabs. Please understand, you know, as a conservative Christian, I support Israel and their right to be in the land that God promised to give them. And he's the one that brought them back into the land, and I'm going to support what God wants to do. But make no mistake, I am not here to say that Jews are saved because they are Jews. Paul, who was a Pharisee, said that the Jews must receive Jesus Christ as their Savior in order to be saved. And that's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is for the Jew first, but also for the Arabs, and also for the Turks, and also for the Italians, and also for the Greeks, and also for the geeks, and everybody else. Jesus came to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that ought to be our goal. And I get it, you know, the world is filled with people who have all kinds of opinions about what's happening there in the Middle East, and they want to try to convince us to get on their side, and, you know, we need to call for the de-escalation of Israel, and we need to call for the support of Palestine, and we need to call for the... And and everybody's got their opinion. And and you go over here and listen to these people on the left, and they're screaming, gas the Jews, and you come over here and listen to the people on the right, and they want all of the Palestinians annihilated and these sorts of things, and it's just a mess. And here we are, Christians, stuck in the middle of all of this. And people want to know, are you going to lean to the left or are you going to lean to the right? I'm not going to do either. I'm going to stand with Jesus. I'm going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And with that, I encourage you, let's make sure that our perspective on these things is biblical, first and foremost. Then we can help others to know what the truth, know about the truth of God's word and what God's word says about all of these things, and we can present them with the real peace plan. I think everybody wants peace in the Middle East. We just need to help people to understand that Jesus is the only one who's going to bring it. With this as the goal, it'll help you to know that the nation of Israel is lighting up like that uh, fastened seatbelt sign that I saw on the plane as me and my Israeli and my Palestinian friend were beginning to land. That fastened seatbelt sign came on. It was an indicator that we're about to land. I think we're seeing a similar indicator happening right now. This plane's coming in for a landing. The The Israel indicator, it includes the promise that the Lord made to Abraham which was an everlasting promise to provide the Israelites with the land of promise as an everlasting inheritance. The Israel indicator also involves all the prophecies that help us to understand how things are about to play out here in these last days. And the Israel indicator also includes the Lord's plan for establishing peace in the Middle East, and it will only come by Jesus Christ, because he is the Prince of Peace. And as we consider everything that the Lord has revealed to us in his word regarding his plan to establish peace on earth, well, I encourage you, let's become those believers who are maintaining a biblical worldview on all of these events as we continue to look forward to, even hasten the day when Jesus Christ will return and establish peace on earth because he is the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and for how you use it to keep us on track with truth and knowing how there are many people on television and, and on YouTube who sound right. They, 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 they sound like they're convinced and they forcefully present their perspective and yet we recognize that their perspective is not biblical. Lord, help us to recognize all of that for what it is and help us to maintain a biblical worldview 
Help us to not be led by our feelings or by popular vote, but help us to have a biblical worldview according to your plan. And Lord, I pray for those who don't yet know you, whether here in Austin or beyond. Pray for people on both sides of the border there in Israel. Lord, I pray that this would be a time when people come to know you, that this would be a a time of revival as many embrace you by faith. And we look forward to the day when you will usher in everlasting peace because you are the Prince of Peace. We thank you for that promise. We thank you for revealing the future to us in advance. And now, Lord, help us to walk by faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.